stand for the reading of God's Word. If you are new to our church, we welcome you. We're in the middle of a series on the Sermon on the Mount and are just entering into chapter 6. The Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And we're going to be in this sermon for many, many months, specifically spending time in the Lord's Prayer, uh, really from now up until Advent. So I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 13. Next week, we'll begin to unpack the Lord's Prayer, which I'll read now, verse by verse, petition by petition. But today, we're going to look at the two ways Jesus was telling those listening that they are not to pray. It has to do with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the pagans. Hear now the word of the Lord. Jesus spoke these words on that mountainside. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. 21 years ago on September 11th, if you were alive, you remember where you were when you heard about the attacks on our country. And then you will remember where you were when you saw the tower fall and then the second one as well. You'll remember the images of people fleeing for their life with smoke just billowing in that bright blue sky. I remember seeing and being struck by those who were running away, but then those first responders who were moving toward the ones called to rescue and save lives. What an amazing picture of Christ and the body of Christ. And here in this world where we're strangers and aliens, we are seeking to bring Jesus, the only one who can rescue us for all eternity. You'll remember after that, churches just like this one were full of people, people who believed and people who maybe didn't believe, but they didn't know what else to do but come together. Some would call it a vigil. Others who really are in Christ called it what it is. It's prayer. And we prayed. Churches all over the world. This past week when Queen Elizabeth passed away, same thing. You will remember where you were. I was driving and I got a text from my freshman daughter. She's a freshman in high school. Somehow in class, she learned about it, had a cell phone, and texted the whole family. The queen has just died. I'll remember that. The days to come, we will see people in Great Britain, but all over the world, praying. There is vigils taking place even now. It's what we do when horrific things or sad things happen. Last weekend, in a really dark, dark reality, 
People in Memphis were gathering to pray, still at this point hoping that Liza Fletcher was still alive. But when she was abducted at 4.30 in the morning that Friday, just a little over a week ago, um, people prayed. She's a member of Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis. It's a sister church of ours in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. George Robertson, who was the moderator of the PCA one year, a wonderful man, a friend, had to yesterday bring the message to a morning church, a morning city, really a morning world, because that story captured so many people's attention. Seeing her story later in the week, they played her singing to students. She was a pre-kindergarten teacher, this little light of mine. That's going to go on and on. Millions of people are going to see that. Prayer. Prayer is really important. It's a means of grace that God has given us as our Heavenly Father. The access that he has given us to the living God, the all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing, all-present God. Today, you come into this place like everyone else each Sunday with enormous needs. We all have them. Sometimes we're in the midst of really hard things. Sometimes they're not as hard. We've come out of that. But we know this side of heaven until Christ returns, we'll be heading into something that's hard. We don't live in despair. We live in the reality of that. But with the hope that we have in Christ, that when we pray to him, he gives us everything we need. Today, if you're able, come at four. If you need prayer for healing, physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, whatever it might be, if you're struggling with your children, if your marriage is struggling, if you're feeling lonely, if you just need prayer for anything, come. Our elders will anoint you with oil, lay hands on you and pray. Maybe you just want to come and offer praises. Come. The church will be open. Four o'clock, we'll sing a couple of songs and move right into prayer. Prayer is important and we need it. And if you're unable to come, I'm not asking you to feel shame, but just don't forget the needs that you have and that the best thing you can do with whatever need you have is bring it with the body of Christ to the foot of the cross. Jesus is in the middle of his sermon, and he's teaching on prayer. He's highlighting three things, though. He's highlighting the hypocrisy that exists, and he's specifically talking to people about the temptation we have to seek the praise of man. We've been talking about that the last couple of weeks. He mentions it in the area of giving, again here in the area of prayer, and later it will be in fasting. So he confronts the Pharisees and tells the people listening to his sermon not to pray like the Pharisees, but he also mentions the pagans. They're called Gentiles. I'll get there in a minute. But let's start with what he says to the Pharisees. Look back with me again at verse, let's see, verse 5. He says, and when you pray, you must not pray like the hypocrites. Actually, says not be like the hypocrites. They're praying because of the way they are. Their prayers aren't, aren't what makes them hypocrites. They're doing what makes sense to them, and they are hypocrites. Hypocrites are, are someone, it was an actor in this point of history, who would simply put a mask on and simply pretend to be something that they were not. So these religious leaders were hypocrites. So because they were hypocrites, they prayed like hypocrites. They did not truly seek the love of God. They did not seek the glory of God. They were seeking to be praised by men. Jesus is very specific about it. 
He says, for they love, and the Greek word there is phileo, that feeling, that emotion of love. They love the feeling to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. Why? That they may be seen by others. And we struggle with the same temptation. It's deep in us, that temptation for other people to notice us when we do things that are even godly. And doing it in order to be seen by others, to be praised by men, makes it ungodly. And that's what Christ is addressing. And Christ says, you, if that's what you desire, you will receive your reward. Somebody will say, I love the way you pray. I love the depth of your prayer. I love the zeal of your prayer. I love the emotion of your prayer. And if you delight in that and you're praying to be seen by others, you'll receive your reward. But that's it. That is the reward. I want to be careful Jesus tells them that they should go, verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. This literally means an interior closet. But what it doesn't mean is that corporate prayer is never to exist. It's not wrong for me to pray before the sermon. It wasn't wrong for Matt to lead us in a prayer petition. It wasn't wrong for me to lead us in a prayer of adoration. It wasn't wrong, it won't be wrong for us to gather this afternoon and have prayers even that are out loud in public. What is wrong is if any of us are seeking the attention of others and the praise of men when we do that. In other words, if I walked back over and sat next to Matt after I prayed and I said, Matt, that was a pretty good prayer, wasn't it? Did you see how people responded? I think they really liked it. I'm pretty special. I'm thankful God gave me that prayer. Well, I wouldn't say that. I might think it, but I would never say it. (laughs) But even if I think it, it shows how distorted we can be. The only way you defeat that is by making much of God. And when you make much of the God that you just heard our choir and that anthem sing, how foolish is it of us to say, I know he's awesome. He's all powerful, almighty, but don't forget me. Make much of me. Jesus is saying the Pharisees were seeking that kind of praise. But why? Whenever we see a sin that is revealed in Scripture or the Spirit reveals a sin in our lives, it's important to understand what's underneath it. And for the Pharisees, there was a deep insecurity in their religious pursuit because their religious pursuit was on being good enough, obedient enough, self-righteous enough for God to be pleased and accept them. And so if they can do that before others who could affirm, yes, you are godly, wow, the way you pray, the length of your prayers, the sound of your prayers, the volume of your prayers, they, out of that insecurity, would begin to feel more secure. And the real problem was their view of God. Their view of God was not that he was a heavenly father, but that he was a slave master. And that if they fell short, they would be rebuked and rejected. There's something underneath them that was moving them that way. And the same thing can affect us. Jesus moves from talking about the Pharisees and their hypocrisy, about wanting to be seen by others, to be praised to the pagans. This takes place in verse 7. Jesus says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard by their many words. First of all, Gentiles is not about the ethnicity of this people. It's about pagans who are not in relationship with God. 
But because of the condition of the world, there's things that they want and they're longing for, so they too will pray to some deity. And the way they believe that God would hear them is if they offer many words. Their primary motivation for prayer was that they did not believe God would hear them. They did not believe God was listening. They certainly didn't see him as Heavenly Father, as Jesus will teach, but because they didn't believe he was listening, their primary motive was, I need to inform him, and then I need to persuade him. And that exists today, even in the church, where people still believe that God is going to respond to their level of faith. And if they don't have a level of faith that is pleasing to God, manifest in their many words, empty repetitions, emotion, zeal, whatever it might be, God won't hear them. That's not true. It's unbiblical. It really is, and I've said this before, it's like we have a faithometer. Over here, it's at zero. And when we begin to show a little bit of faith when we pray, and if it's a louder prayer or one with deeper theological words or lots of scriptures or maybe even a lot of emotion, or maybe it's actually the opposite of that, it's really retreating, but letting people know you're retreating, really fasting, doing hard things to the body, all those things, because there's a misunderstanding that if my faith just manifests itself enough, there's a moment when God will say, okay, they have the faith, they have the zeal, they have the right words, and he'll answer our prayers. That is from the pit of hell. And the way it manifests itself, even in the Bible Belt, like where we live, is that people believe that's what the Word of God teaches, and it doesn't. It never teaches that. Does it teach to pray? Yes. Does it teach persistent prayer? Yes. Does it teach that it's wrong to repeat things? No. Christ Jesus was persistent. In the garden, three times Jesus said, Father, if you were willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will be done, but yours. A little bit later, Father, if you were willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will be done, but yours. A little bit later, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will be done, but yours. To be repetitive, to be persistent is not wrong. What is wrong is when we believe that our persistence or some level of faith is magically going to cause us to bring enough pleasure to God where God now says, I'll do it. That's not the Bible. It's not the Bible. Is faith required? Yes, God's word says. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because whoever comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. But if we get stuck on the word earnest, and we believe that our earnest desires are measured, and God's just waiting for enough, we miss the point of God's word and who God is. That's not who God is. Jesus says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. The word literally means babble. Do not just continue to say things babbling on as if that's going to move the mark and make God respond. He says, this is what the Gentiles do, the pagans. 
for they think they will be heard for their many words. You and I in Christ aren't heard because of our words at all. He already knows. Yet our words still matter because he calls us to pray. Here's what it says. Look with me at verse 8. Do not be like them, the pagans, the Gentiles, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. He already knows. There is not a need that you have right now that he doesn't know. There's not a need you will have or a loved one will have or a friend will have that he doesn't know. He knows the need. He knows the outcome. He knows. In the past service, a couple came up to me with one of their children and one of the members of the family, the woman, has just received a hard diagnosis. God already knows. He knows what the doctors are going to say and what the doctors are going to do. He knows whether he himself will heal her miraculously because he can or whether he might do that through medicine or whether this will be the way over time he calls her home. He already knows. But I prayed with her because it matters. God calls us to pray and we pray in faith but we must never forget two really significant faithful prayers. One was Jesus. Thy will be done is always the greatest prayer of faith you can ever pray. Because it's a prayer that says you trust him no matter what. Thy will be done. A second great prayer of faith is when the man said to Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. That is a great prayer of faith. I pray it all the time. I believe, help my unbelief. In that story, what didn't happen was Jesus said, oh, you said you believe, but now you say you have unbelief? Well, when you get full belief, I will respond. Of course that's not what was said, because it's not true, yet that might be the way we often approach God. The Old Testament is a great example of using many words to try to impress God. In 1 Kings 18, look at this later, it's amazing. It's the story of Elijah, the prophet. He's addressing the people of Israel who are tempted to follow 450 prophets of Baal. Elijah says this to them, listen, this is 1821 of 1 Kings. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood. But put no fire on it, and I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire on it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. So this epic battle that took place on Mount Carmel, I've been to that mountain, it's a real mountain, it really happened. Elijah sets this challenge. The 450 prophets, in order to appease their God, to cause their God to see that there is enough faith, 
begin to pray. From morning to noon, nothing happens. Elijah begins to mock them. So what do they do? They pray longer. They pray louder. Then they even begin to cut themselves. They're actually shedding blood in order to cause God to respond. And nothing happens. In a very bold and powerful move, Elijah has water three times poured on the bull that he has sacrificed. So much water that it's filling the trenches around the altar. And then, thinking about how long they prayed, how loud they prayed, all the things they did to their bodies, Elijah then offers this prayer to the Lord. Our prayers don't have to be long, friends. Listen to what he says. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. What he's doing at the beginning of this prayer is making much of God. And when you're making much of God in your prayer and the temptation comes, I wonder how people are responding to my prayer. It seems so foolish. If we really believe who he is, why would I really be thinking of self? That's the only way you fight that. Elijah's making much of God. Then he says, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and I love this phrase, and licked up the water that was in the trench. At four o'clock today, that's the, this is the same God we're praying to. Whether you're here or praying at home or in your car or on a bike, this is the same God we're praying to. The same one. God is not waiting for the faithometer to hit a point to suddenly say, I'll respond. Another picture of this is in a parable that's often misunderstood. In Luke 18, if you have a Bible, turn there, and this will be the last thing we look at before we come to the table. Jesus tells the parable of the persistent widow. It's an amazing parable. And he doesn't always do this, but at the beginning of the parable, he tells you what the application is. So listen as I read from Luke 18. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So no matter what you take from this parable, that's the application. Don't stop praying. Always pray. Be persistent in prayer. And don't lose heart. But where people get confused with this parable is they misapply it because they misunderstand who God is. Jesus tells the parable, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. So let that set on you. There was a judge who had no fear of God and he didn't respect people. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. 
But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? That's his children. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? What's the application? Always pray. Don't lose heart. But for many, they walk away thinking, I've got to pray like the persistent widow. And that's actually true. But you don't have to pray like the persistent widow because God is an unrighteous judge or because God is an unloving judge. We are his children. And what this means is that he would never respond like this judge. We don't have to continue to persist him with the thought that one day if I just bother him enough, persuade him enough, say enough words, show enough zeal, he will now answer me. That's not who he is. He's our heavenly father. But there's even more. You and I in Christ are not widowed. We're not alone. We're not at risk like a widow would be at that time. We are not widows and widowers, and he's not an unjust judge. We're his adopted children, and he is a heavenly father. So what gives you heart to continue to pray always is that in my needs, the sight of heaven, I can persistently go to my father and say, help, answer my prayer. And I can trust whatever he says is going to be good for me even if it's not what I desire. And the great example there is Jesus. Three times, persistently, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Sometimes the Lord isn't willing to take the cup. Sometimes it is a diagnosis that's going to end in our death. Sometimes it's unemployment that lasts a lot longer, or being single that lasts a lot longer, or depression that just won't leave. Persist in prayer, but not as a widow or widower, but as a beloved child adopted by God. Hudson Taylor, the missionary to China, incredible work, in 1859 received news that the man that was running the hospital that was serving so many and bringing so many to Christ was called back to Europe and had to go suddenly. Not only was he the one leading that work, he was also the one who financed it, who was putting up the money for it. So now as he left, Hudson, had no, Hudson Taylor had no idea what was going to happen. So he told his staff, we will probably not be able to pay you for long. Some stayed, some left. But he said, trust God, trust God. He never wavered. He never wavered. They got down to the very last bag of rice that I had, they had to feed the staff and all the patients. That next day, when there was nothing left, 
a check arrived in the mail, a large check with a letter that said, I've also come recently into an inheritance. It's a large sum. Please let me know how I can continue to support this mission. Now, what's amazing about that is that check was dated like the letter, like the stamp on the letter, months before it had arrived in China. God knew. He knew months in advance. And he knows for you months in advance, years in advance, frankly, from all eternity. And looking forward, God is not waiting to learn anything. He just simply in his timing is revealing who he is. And one of the great gifts he has given us as his people is this table. A table 2,000 years ago that he told his disciples about and then said that this was a practice that we should continue. A practice that we would need to have encouragement and nourishment on the spiritual journey. The table that he gives us here is a Christian table. It's not a table for anyone. It really is only for those who have professed faith in Christ. It's not a Presbyterian table. It's the Lord's table. And so if you are in Christ Jesus, you've rested and received him alone, you are to come forward and you are to take these elements and be encouraged by the fulfillment of a promise that was made thousands of years ago. If you're not in Christ today, maybe today's the day you will receive Jesus. You'll pray for salvation. If that's where you are, please come and see me or Matt or one of the elders or somebody that you came with. Ask them about this. But don't come for you and eat and drink judgment on yourself. That's what the word of God says. But for all who are in Christ, we must come. In a moment, we'll set the elements apart. And let me tell you how we'll do it. Those in the balcony, as soon as the elders start the communion, go ahead and come forward. Go into one of these three rows. Down on the floor, ushers will dismiss you row by row. If you're unable to stand and come forward, simply raise your hand and we'll bring the elements to you. When you come and receive the elements from the elders, go ahead and partake of them right here down on the floor. Eat the bread and drink the juice, then return to your seat. Let me pray. Father, as we get ready to come before you and take part in this gift that you've given us, I pray that you would cause us to remain present, to listen to the music, to think upon you and who you are, to celebrate our life in Christ. And Father, for those who are here that they know they're not part of your family yet, I pray that you would draw near to them in such a clear way that they would trust you even now. Friend, if that's you, simply pray, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I need you, my Savior, and trust you with my life. I repent of my sins and come to you, Jesus. Save me. For all who are in Christ, enjoy the celebration of this meal for what it is meant to be for you. Strength and encouragement on this journey. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.